0: You better think about what you're saying. You better think about the consequences of your actions. Oh, shut up, woman. You better think, think. Think about what you're trying to do to me. Yeah. Think, think, think. Let your mind go, let yourself be free. Let's go back, let's- Welcome, everybody. Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, where I, your rabbi, humbly and solemnly dedicate myself. To serving you by revealing how the world really works. And one way in which the world really works is that connection lies at the heart of everything. Now, one of my goals in doing this show is to equip you with the intellectual ammunition for resolving all kinds of questions that crop up in your day-to-day life, probably 20 times a day. If you're a busy person, probably 20 times a day. Issues crop up where you have to decide, what am I going to do about this thing? Am I going to resolve it in this way or in that way? Or am I going to procrastinate by postponing it for dealing with at a later time? But at some point or another, decisions are called for. They're called for in your professional life, in your family life, in relationships with friends, and yes, even in your relationship with God, your faith life. Not everybody has an active faith life. But uh, everybody has a spiritual part of their being and knowing correctly how to interact with that and knowing how to deal with that is enormously helpful. I uh, encountered somebody recently um, who asked me the following question. He, He was involved with a particular woman for a period of time, and uh, everything was really perfect. But he found himself fatally attracted to an ex-relationship, a woman he had been involved with before and ended it. And when I said to him, so, on a rational basis, as you think this through, which is the woman who is best suited to you? And he said, well, there's no question about it. Uh, it's this woman I'm fortunate enough to be with right now. I said, how do your friends like her? He said, my friends think I'm crazy. I, I should have proposed and got married ages ago. And your family, how do, my family all loves her. And you, he said, well, I just feel that, I haven't yet got that ex out of my mind. I feel drawn to her. I feel I wouldn't be honest to myself by carrying on with this woman uh, while I still feel so strongly. The way he put it was, I still have these feelings. And I'm quite sure that if you are already a somewhat regular listener to the show, then you are already saying to yourself, the feelings aren't what should drive your behavior. The things you feel should not shape the decisions you make. Decisions should be made on the basis of wisdom. And one of the tools that I want to supply to you uh, it's, it, it may be one of the most important things you hear today, maybe one of the most important things you're going to hear all week, or perhaps you might be somebody for whom what we're going to discuss now is actually the most important thing you've heard all month. What is it? It is that there is a duality to life. There is a way of looking at things which requires you to be aware that nearly always there is more than one thing guiding a behavior or guiding a trend. It would be best if I gave you some examples, I think. Uh, Let's imagine that uh, somebody, not you, Um, somebody is trying to to buy something, whatever it is, some some object, something they want or something they desire, and um, you look at them shopping for price. They're trying to get it at what they feel to be an excellent price, and they've settled on it. And you think to yourself, well, there's only one thing driving this person, and that's price. But wait, what happens if the person has made the decision to buy this object from a certain vendor or from a certain seller at a certain price, and he's happy, excepting that you now notify him that you actually yesterday bought exactly the same thing for 30% less money. All of a sudden now, he's going to be upset. He was happy a minute ago, but now he's upset because somebody else Got it for less. So you could say that this person is not being motivated just by price. He's being motivated by price and also the desire to not appear foolish, not to appear to have overpaid when he speaks to friends about it. And so there would be one example of uh, somebody who you thought was driven by one particular factor. Turns out there were really two. Uh, what about a guy who uh, meets a girl and he finds her attractive and pretty, and he's uh, he's drawn to her, and he he would like to develop a relationship. He would like her to become his girlfriend, and he would like to develop the relationship more. But you might say to yourself, "Well, wait a moment. Here's a guy who's you know really just driven by this girl's looks, and he wanted which." You know, it's certainly a valid part of such a decision. I'm I'm not disparaging that at all. But it might well turn out that not only does he want a girl that he finds pretty and attractive, but he also wants a girl that his friends will think is hot. And so, again, there's really two things going on Uh, when somebody in your company asks for a raise you might find again that there is more than one thing going on. Perhaps the person wants more money, but perhaps he also wants more status in the company. That's something else again. How's about um, uh, one of my favorites, uh, a bridge that I know very well, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge. This is a bridge in the state of Washington that links the city of Tacoma... To the uh, peninsula, and the nearest town there is Gig Harbor, and beautiful little town, by the way. Uh, Susan and I love kayaking around in that harbor, and so uh, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge was first built and opened in. Actually, it was July the first, nineteen forty. America was not yet in the World War that was raging in Europe, and. uh, The bridge opened on July the 1st. November the 7th uh, came a windstorm that uh, is not uncommon in that part of the world at that time of the year, and um, nobody was particularly worried because they had calculated out the force, the wind force that the bridge could take, right? It's, it's, It's easy to calculate. Um, a wind force of a certain number of miles an hour exerts a force of a certain number of pounds on every square foot that is exposed to the breeze. And uh, the calculation is, what is the cross-sectional area of the bridge? You add the cross-sectional area of the roadway and the towers and the cabling, and and it was the suspension bridge. By the way, this bridge at the time, just think about it, you know, today— Uh, The longest suspension bridges are no longer in the United States of America. Most are in Asia. But at the time they opened this on July the 1st, 1940, the Tacoma Narrows Bridge was the third longest suspension bridge in the world. Uh, There was the Golden Gate Bridge in San Francisco, which had opened up just before. Uh, There was the George Washington Bridge over the Hudson River. The Verrazano Bridge in New York wasn't going to be built Uh, for another 20-something years, and uh, here was the Comanarrows Bridge, third longest bridge, and they calculated this one factor, the wind, and everybody was quite comfortable because the bridge was more than adequately strong uh, to be able to withstand anything that was likely in the way of wind plus more with with a very comfortable safety margin. And yet on d- November the 7th of that year, the bridge undulated. Um, it, it became and was known as Galloping Gertie. And the roadway began undulating and uh, eventually the, the sh- it shook itself to pieces. And the bridge fell down into the water, uh, where it still remains to this day, by the way, if you're into skin diving, scuba diving like I am, uh, you can actually see the uh, remnants of the bridge underwater and it sort of serves now as an artificial reef a lot of fish around there Uh, but if you do go take a look take your uh, wetsuit because the water there is very very cold indeed There are also extremely strong tidal currents anyway that's that's way more than you need to know about the bridge what you do need to know is that the bridge broke not because of wind pressure but because of resonance nobody knew anything about it at that point do you know when you play a saxophone uh, what produces the distinctive sound of the saxophone? Well, it's something called a reed. A reed is usually a thin strip of wood in the mouthpiece, and the wind from your breath that that blows over the reed causes it to vibrate at a certain frequency, having to do with the uh, uh, with the, um, uh, the the size and dimensions of the reed and and a few other things. Well. Uh, resonance was a new idea in 1940, and that is that every physical object actually has what's called a resonant frequency, a frequency at which it most comfortably resonates. So if you take a 12-inch wooden ruler or a plastic ruler, and you hold, shall we say, the first two inches very firmly down to a table, you clamp it down on a table, and then you flick the end of the, uh, the, the ruler, it's going to start vibrating. What's going to determine the vibration? Uh, the dimensions of the ruler itself. Every ruler vibrates at a certain rate. Now, if you move it so as four inches are over the table, the resonant frequency goes up, and if you move it that only one inches off the table, it goes down, and everything. Well, guess what? The Tacoma Narrows Bridge also had a resonant frequency. So why did the Tacoma Narrows Bridge fall? Not for one reason, for two reasons. Wind pressure, but also resonant frequency that made the roadbed vibrate and flutter, and it basically shook itself to pieces. Uh, Another example is light itself, right? One of the great mysteries of physics is what is light? And uh, without spending undue time on it now, suffice it to say that light can be understood mathematically if we regard it as an electromagnetic wave, exactly, by the way, like radio waves and e- exactly like x-rays you have at the dentist or the doctor, just different vibration frequencies. And so, you might say, well, now I understand light perfectly because I treat it as if it's a vibrating wave. The problem is that light also behaves as if it is a stream of photons. So, which is it? And the answer is the only way to understand light is to look at both the wave phenomenon, and also the beam, the, the photon phenomenon. Uh, duality is just a reality in the world. I'm not going to spend a lot of time speaking about why it is that throughout the five books of Moses, the Ten Commandments are only referred to as the Ten Commandments a couple of times but they are referred to as the two tablets many times. Reason, once again stressing this idea of duality, 2 in the world. Uh, cannonballs, again, this goes back a couple of centuries. When cannonballs were fired uh, during uh, military maneuvers, during wars and battles, and nobody knew how to calculate the tra- trajectory of the cannonball. Everybody was doing it by trial and error. Eventually, they discovered that you get maximum range when the barrel of the cannon is at 45 degrees to the ground. Raise it more than that, it'll go higher but not as far. Uh, lower, than, lower it below 45 degrees, and uh, it'll, it'll sort of skim the earth but not go nearly as far. Okay. The calculation was had to wait for quite a long time and once again the only way to calculate the trajectory of a cannonball parabola is by doing two completely separate analyses basically resolving the complicated motion of the cannonball's parabola into a vertical component in other words just studying the cannonball's movement vertically up and down till it hits the earth again And the horizontal movement of the cannonball, which uh, actually seems to be fairly steady until it hits the ground. Again, uh, more technical than we need to get, but once again, two aspects of it. Uh, Somebody uh, buys a car. Why do you buy a car? Well, usually not just for one reason. You might say we buy cars for transport. If that were true, there would probably only be one brand of car. That's all. Transport is transport. The truth is that there is always more than one reason why we buy a car. Some people buy a car as a badge of economic success. And so although a BMW provides transport in, in no way different to the transport that can be obtained uh, from a less expensive brand of automobile, many people will still buy the BMW. You're not going to get from A to B any quicker because the main factor there is is traffic and speed limits. But you are going to feel different about yourself driving. So transport is one reason, and its badge of success is another. For some people, a badge of success, they have so many badges of success that they buy a car to proclaim their environmental virtue. And so they will then buy a car that is electric, even though a simple analysis will show you that the amount of energy that a Tesla needs to travel a certain distance at a certain speed really is no different whether it's driven by gasoline or whether it's driven by battery. And if it's driven by gasoline that power is generated in the internal combustion engine of the car and if it is going to be uh, an electric car then that energy is going to be have to be created elsewhere and how is most electrical energy in the country generated by burning a, a fuel either coal or natural gas And all of that puts exactly the same amount of carbon into the atmosphere as driving your car on gasoline. Really, it's absolutely true. (laughs) It's it's mathematically uh, provable. It's called the law of conservation of energy. It really doesn't matter how you take your energy, but the amount of energy is always the same. And uh, you may feel extremely virtuous driving your electric car, but in reality, you've made absolutely no difference to the world whatsoever. That is the the law of a duality of 2 There, You buy the car for transport and as a badge of success, or as a badge of success and to proclaim green virtue, whatever it is. But the point is that like the cannonball, it makes more sense. You can finally understand how it all works once you use a dual approach when you look at it from the point of view of two angles from two different perspectives and that's why we use phrases like on the other hand all right now we're not octopuses but even if we had eight hands i don't think we'd say well on the other seven hands no for the most part an accurate picture of reality can be obtained from looking at two perspectives on the thing, seldom from only one. And so if you're busy analyzing something and all you're looking at it is from one angle, do yourself a favor, stop and look at it, try and find what other angle, what is the second aspect. And when you apply dual thinking to the problem, you can be sure of one thing, and that is you will end up with a more accurate resolution, and a more correct judgment at the end, using two inputs than using only one. And I told you all of this only because I wanted you to understand the main subject that we're moving on to right after this quick break, and that is sex and money. There is something that uh, that we can gain a deeper insight into if we look at it through the perspective of both sex and money, and that's where we'll launch in just a moment or two. First of all, as always, I do a little bit of advertising because that is what sustains the show, and um, the... Uh, the, uh, the, the sale item, the item that's on, available for a special price for listeners of this show is called Prosperity Power, Connect for Success. It's uh, two audio CDs, and um, you are able to use that, the information in that, in order to bring greater success into your lives and that's a good thing there's no reason why anybody should ever experience any embarrassment at saying i would like a more successful life than i already have there's nothing wrong with that and once you admit that to yourself and it's not easy to do because unfortunately uh, negative inputs persuade us somehow that expressing a desire for greater success betrays a venality. It betrays an unwholesome, greedy impulse. Well, nothing could be further from the truth, and I'll explain that more. But meanwhile, take a look at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, and take a look at a two-CD audio product called Prosperity Power Connect for Success. It's 120 minutes of information, which is simply not available elsewhere. RabbiDanielLappin.com is the website, and uh, the product, Prosperity Power, Connect for Success. It's an audio product, and uh, I will be back with you in just a moment. Welcome back, everybody. Yes, I, your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, solemnly dedicated to revealing how the world really works. And uh, as you can probably tell, I am preparing this show just as the news came out that Aretha Franklin has gone home to her father in heaven. And uh, I... uh, Really sort of became aware of her and began to appreciate her voice and the the passion with which she sang and you're gonna laugh at me, I know because i'm 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 probably a bit of a philistine here uh and uh and that's okay, I feel I'm among friends, and uh if you laugh, I like to believe you're laughing with me <laughs> rather than at me and so I'll I'll simply um, tell you that one of the movies that I personally regard as one of the best movies ever made, that's just me, okay? I am not a sophisticated movie reviewer. Um, As a matter of fact, uh, I have been known to review movies that I've never even seen. So uh, uh, far from it. But The movie that uh, I just have the fondest memories of, and it's one of the few movies I actually bought in VHS form years ago, and then I bought again in DVD form, and the movie, well, I'm sure some of you have guessed it already, yes, The Blues Brothers, the original 1979 or 1980, The Blues Brothers with uh, Aykroyd and Belushi, but with the most amazing cast of stars, musical greats like Cab Calloway was in the movie, uh, and of course, uh, Jim Brown, by the way, and of course, uh, Aretha Franklin. And I used to joke, just just kidding around, I used to say, uh, Aretha Franklin singing Think in the Blues Brothers, was her greatest performance ever. Well, I'm sure that's not true. But the truth is that in a certain way, it turns out that I wasn't that far off. Um, You see, Arita Franklin, during the early 70s, was signed to Atlantic Records, uh, and her friend there was Jerry Wexler, who was a, 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 a legendary um, musical producer, and uh, and she did okay, but by about 1974 or thereabouts, uh, her career pretty much seemed over. It, it just pretty much seemed gone, and uh, then a strange thing happened. A guy called Clive Davis, who uh, I think was the head of a label called Aristo Records, sees the Blues Brothers, watches Aretha Franklin's performance in the Blues Brothers, and immediately signs her onto Aristo Records. And that happened in 1980, I think it was. And uh, immediately the Blues Brothers came out. Clive Davis got hold of Aretha Franklin. You've got to come to Aristo Records, and and that's what she did, and never looked back. And uh, her career, post-1980 was huge compared to whatever happened before. It was absolutely huge. The Blues Brothers movie actually did put Arita Franklin on the musical map even more than she was before. And so uh, uh, there it is. My my, um, tremendous joy from her singing, from her performance generally, not only in The Blues Brothers, but uh, generally and the movie itself i think it was a john landis uh, directed movie i believe but at any rate uh, i'm not recommending it because it's just me you know <laughs> and i'm i may well be uh, um and i don't know uh, just unsophisticated in my taste and uh, you may all be laughing at no with me on that particular point but it's just why I selected, of, of all the Aretha Franklin stuff to to play, I selected uh, Think from the Blues Brothers, the great Blues Brothers movie of 1980, the Blues Brothers 1980, and then they did another one, uh, they tried to do a replay of the Blues Brothers in um, 1998, yeah, 1998, I think it was. And uh, that one never, never sang to my heart like the original one did. John Belushi, unfortunately, had died already. I think John Candy had already passed on. But um, um, anyways, it, but she sang again in that movie. She sang Respect. And uh, and again, today, um, you know, when you say the song Respect, who remembers that Otis Redding sang it? Uh, everybody I know s- thinks only of the Aretha Franklin version of it, and again, that, that largely got famous in the second Blues Brothers movie. Anyways, enough of uh, this entertainment flim and we can move on backwards, back again to the topic of what is it that is being revealed by looking with a dual perspective? Of sex and money. How do those two things go together? Well, let's, uh, let's note that one of the things that happened during the Obama presidency in the United States, one of the things that happened was that uh, young people, many young people, lost faith in capitalism, and they tended towards socialism. Now, I don't think you should have faith in capitalism. I think capitalism is a consequence of having faith in God, which is why secular or atheistic regimes tend to move to socialism. And so, one of the things the Obama uh, administration, one of the things the Obama years did to America was, uh, number one, it reduced the significance of Judeo-Christian faith in America in a number of of different ways, and I don't want to uh, delve into that now. But if you are interested, uh, it's it's quite easy to research as I did, and you'll find that uh, in the, the 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 cases that the the Obama Justice Department decided to pursue. Uh, in the way they handled uh, educational policy and a a whole variety of other stuffs. Uh, It was a war. Did I say stuffs? Forgive me. Uh, It was a war on Judeo-Christian faith. And so uh, partially as a result of that, but I think, to be fair, largely as a result of during those Obama years, large numbers of people graduated from college. And they came out of college with... Absolutely useless degrees in gender studies or race in medieval English literature, etc. Uh, etc. Cetera, et cetera. So, so many degrees are granted out of the liberal arts departments in universities during those years and now. Uh, meanwhile, those students spent their formative years at college with faded posters on their walls saying things like hope and change, and uh, they came out of college emburdened by excessive debt, quite confident that uh, they were now ready for the next step in the grand American experiment, only to discover that nobody, but nobody, is paying people for degrees in those useless ideas, things that are fundamentally false, things that are divisive, things that uh, are simply untrue and whether they spent their time subsequently camped in tents in city parks protesting or whether they moved back into their parents' basements or whatever it was. But at that point, people became hostile to capitalism. Uh, the, um, the tendency towards socialism grew extensively And uh, it's one of the reasons, of course, that uh, a large number of of these young people turned to supporting Bernie Sanders during the uh, 2016 election cycle because he was very clear about the fact that, yes, he was a socialist. That was what he was and people uh, like this were drawn to it because they felt they were betrayed not by the Obama administration, but they felt they were betrayed by capitalism. The system had failed them, and the socialist vision uh, manifested by Bernie Saunders and many other people was that you get stuff for free. And when they graduated from college with nothing but debt— no useful degrees, and no jobs on the horizon, the idea of getting stuff for free seemed very appealing. And that made socialism also very appealing. And that's pretty much what happened. But unfortunately, as Margaret Thatcher wisely said many years ago in the United Kingdom, the problem with socialism is that you eventually run out of other people's money and uh, you can just think of Venezuela, by the way, as as an example of that. But that is very much something that uh, was happening. I mention all of this because socialism has always been at war, not just with money, but also with marriage. Socialism has deeply resented the idea of individuals owning things, individuals owning property, individuals building private wealth, but socialism has been equally opposed to marriage all along. Now, you know how the United States Congress exempts itself from all the laws it passes uh, that regulate our lives and and by the way, I must say, I have absolutely no understanding whatsoever. I've, I, I need to really research this. I don't understand how such an abomination ever came to pass. How on earth did it ever happen in the United States of America, formed on the values that the founders repeatedly spoke about? How did it ever come about that our rulers... We're exempt from the rules they imposed on us. They have their own health plans, they have their own pension plans, and there's a whole slew of other things that don't apply to members of Congress. What? I mean, that's so bizarre. But if you think about it for a moment, it actually makes perfect sense. It has always been part of the socialist vision that the governors, the rulers, the elite, the decision makers, view themselves as above the people they are ruling. Nothing could be further from the American dream. And uh, the the truth of the matter is that socialism sees the governing class as, and, and you'll laugh here perhaps, but it's absolutely true. They see the governing class as farmers in charge of a bunch of animals. And so naturally, they want to be in charge of providing everything the animals need in exchange for everything that the animals produce. That is the socialist dream. This is why you will never get a socialistic-leaning politician to ever commit to what the maximum tax rate that any free citizen should ever be subjected to, because in their heart of hearts, they believe it's 100%. In exactly the same way that a farmer doesn't think that a sheep should only give up 40% of its wool, or a cow should only yield 40% of the milk it produces. No, you're a sheep, you give me all your wool. You're a cow, you give me all your milk. And in exchange, I will take care of you, I'll feed you, I'll get you medicine when you're sick, when you die, I'll bury you, or get rid of your carcass, whatever it is. You got no worries, because I'll take care of you. In exchange, all your production comes to me. That is the farmer's view towards his animals, quite legitimate for a farmer towards his animals, by the way, not at all legitimate from a person towards those he governs, but that is the socialist dream. And so, obviously, the farmer makes rules for his livestock that he doesn't live by. Why should he? He's the farmer. They're the animals. And that is why socialist-leaning politicians always speak in such patronizing terms about the governed. They need this. We must provide that. We, We haven't yet taken care of this problem. Why? Well, because you don't expect cows to solve a problem. If a road gets washed out on the farm, the farmer will have to deal with it. Obviously, they don't expect the animals to take care of that themselves and so it is socialistic government looks at us all as a form of animals and so naturally they have to be paternalistic and patronizing naturally they don't expect us to be able to do anything on the part of our our own needs and one of the most plaintive and hilarious uh, cries I read about from government from time to time, is when they have provided some service that they believe to be needed, and then they have a quaint phrase, underutilization of resources. We have to think again. In other words, there are countless government programs that are underused. There are also a whole lot that are overused. But to give you an example, I believe during the Obama administration, and be true today, uh the health system has to provide every mother who gives birth with a with a uh, breast milk pump reason because every woman wants to go back to work and they have to be able to pump breast milk for the baby but utilization was uh, not 100% by any means because there are many women who had no use for it but it doesn't doesn't matter these breast pumps that are not inexpensive had to be provided to every single woman. Government knows best, always, especially a socialistic, leaning government, which, by the way, is in the absence of uh, intellectual and spiritual energy to the contrary, that's the direction in which government will always move, right? It's unfortunately, it's a default. Government will slide down the slippery slope of socialism, unless enormous energy is expended on avoiding that but uh, if you if you want an understanding of where the United States of America and other countries in Europe are today it's simply a case of sliding into socialism that's what's happened and so you won't be surprised to hear that socialism's war on both money and marriage are very different from what its leaders like for themselves, I remember the first time I discovered that Karl Marx, Karl Marx, yes, of Jewish ancestry. I'm sorry to say, um, he married his his childhood sweetheart Jenny. What was her name? Jenny von Jenny von Westphalen, I think it was. I, I think anyway it doesn't make any difference the important thing is he married her and stayed married for most of his life i mean that's that's it was a perfectly normal marriage they seemed dedicated to one another and uh, she joined him in his quest to bring socialism to the world but he he wrote very early on that uh um, marriage is a, a very bad thing, the nuclear family must be dismissed as archaic and a repressive arrangement, uh, male and female parental role models have to be gotten rid of, and, um, and he wrote in the Communist Manifesto, by the way, marriage is a legalized prostitution and a form of female slavery. That's what he wrote. But uh, Marx himself, oh, he made sure that he had the benefits of marriage, and his pursuit of money, mostly uh, through his friend Frederick Engels, uh, was without, without limit. And so, yes, Marx wanted money, and Marx wanted marriage, but he made absolutely certain that every system that followed his belief would make sure that individuals would not have marriage and would not have money. That's right. That is how he used to do it. Because socialism, being the farmer and the animals, obviously what I rule for you doesn't apply to me. Obviously. Okay. The uh, product at the website, which is rabbi rabbidaniellappin.com. Love you to go over there and uh, connect with us. Uh, Look for a product on sale just for listeners of this show. It's called Prosperity Power Connect for Success. Special price there. It's a two-hour audio program. Uh, You can download it or have it sent to you in the form of CDs. And it is very, very useful. Uh, I'll tell you more about the, uh, the resource as we move along. But the idea is the power of connection. The idea... And here I'm back into what we're discussing on the show, that sex and marriage, sex, and excuse me, uh, sex and money, both require the participation of another person. The website, rabbi com, and the product, Prosperity Power, Connect for Success. And when we come back, we'll take a look at uh, sex and money, both require the participation of another person connection is what it's all about. Prosperity power, yeah, connect for success. And uh, maybe uh, a few seconds of Rita Franklin as we get ready to come back for the next part of the show. Well, there we are, back again. And you know how I always use the present tense when I speak about some of the great transmitters of ancient Jewish wisdom of years gone by. Uh, For instance, when I quote uh, Moses Maimonides, shall we say, uh, who lived in the 12th century, I nearly always say, Maimonides writes or Maimonides says, You know, why don't I say past tense, he wrote or he said, because to me, he's as alive now as if he was walking the the streets of Alexandria or Seville, uh, because the essence of Moses Maimonides are his words. And I have those right here on my bookshelf in my workshop, otherwise known as my study. And so, to me, he's right here. Well, there were many artists, there were many great singers of the 1700s and the 1800s. You know, there were people, people used to go to concerts, there were musical performances, and those are lost. But now, with the miracle of recording technology, and the many different ways that people have of being able to listen to music, um, or... Discussions like this one uh, online, the voice of Aretha Franklin will live on, also in the present tense, always. And the music is still there, and uh, we can hear it and thrill to it, just as we always were able to do so, which I think is a pretty remarkable thing, really quite wonderful. Well, the war on money and marriage, yes. So that was always, and always is a part of the socialist project to demolish family life, to demolish normative family life based on marriage, and to demolish private ownership of money um, the The drive in the twentieth century for this was unfortunately enormously assisted in America when the so-called Frankfurt school moved from Germany to the United States. Why did they move? Well, unfortunately, and I, I have to tell you this because I, I know you count on me to be as truthful as I possibly can, and uh, yes, they were all Jewish. Herbert Marcuse uh, taught at Columbia and at Brandeis and impacted that entire generation very powerfully. Um, George Lukács, the Hungarian philosopher, again Jewish, Uh, in his uh, seminal work, Marxism and Human Liberation, uh, Lukács writes and is very specific uh, about the need to wipe out Western civilization. He, Lukács wrote something called The Theory of the Novel, and I'm not recommending any of this stuff, a lot of it's just turgid garbage. But um, in his own words, very clearly, he asked the question, Who will save us from Western civilization? And so when I repeatedly tell you that the only way to understand the bizarre alliance that has been formed between European socialism and Islamic fundamentalism, where uh, Islamic fundamentalists are treated more leniently by the criminal justice system, than are christians throughout europe western europe with the exception by the way of hungary which is i must tell you it's um it 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 looks as if it may be one of the few promising corners of europe i know that the prime minister of hungary is regarded in supreme disfavor because he refused to take in muslim immigrants into his country but uh, these th- this linkage Between Western European and American liberalism in the extreme, socialism ultimately, and Islamic fundamentalism, the only way to make sense of that bizarre alliance is George Lukash's question, who will save us from Western civilization? These two forces, Islamic fundamentalism and socialism, are unified by their loathing, Of Western Civilization. That's what it is. And uh, this is why it is. You heard on American college campuses, and this is already in the 60s and 70s, you know, that silly childish chant, hey, hey, ho, ho, Western Civ has got to go. They've been singing that for decades already, since the early 60s, because the enemy is everything that Western Civilization has built and developed. And Western civilization has created freedom, freedom from government tyranny. What makes it possible to be free of government tyranny? Having your own money and having your own family. I take it that I don't need to spend any time on this show, given the audience I know that I'm privileged to be speaking to. I know that I do not have to spend any time whatsoever mentioning and explaining and giving the citations for the fact that very few intact families are on government assistance in America. Very few. It's overwhelmingly the province of single people. People who depend on the government are overwhelmingly single people. Are there occasionally uh, families on welfare assistance? Sure. But the government figures themselves reveal that they are the only people who are on for short periods of time. Families do not depend on government. Families grant independence. Families are the cauldrons of freedom. That's where it happens. Growing up a free person is much easier when you grow up as part of a loving, intact family with a mother and a father. Some of the others who stimulated socialism and were the brains trusts of the growing socialism that spread largely from the university campuses of America during the second half of the 20th century. Uh, As I said, um, Herbert Marcuse, yes, Jewish, uh, he promoted, I mean, this, this is what the guy is being paid to do on the campuses of American universities, to promote every form of unrestrained sexuality and every form of sexual deviancy over traditional codes of of sexual propriety, smash the traditional views of sex and marriage in favor of every deviancy. Another Jew, Wilhelm Reich, uh, he, I think, was the one who actually came up with the term the sexual revolution. And as you can imagine, this was enormously popular with young students on university campuses. Uh, Eric Fromm, another German-Jewish scholar uh, promoting his ideas in, in the West, undermining Western civilization, but always pushing abolition of marriage and abolition of private wealth. Well, of course, because marriage and private wealth make you independent of government. You don't need the farmer anymore. It's as if the cow and the sheep started talking, started building uh, organizations and groups to resist the farmer. Yes, of course, the farmer isn't crazy about that. Well, private wealth, creating wealth, private business, uh, the private sector, and the family make it possible for people not to need government. And the last thing that socialist-leaning tyrants need are people who don't need them. That's, it's as simple as that. That is really how it works. Now, what is the huge idea into which we can gain deeper insight by studying the duality of sex and money? And the answer, answer is very simple. The answer is connection. The huge magic of connection. What am I speaking about? Well, it would appear that mm, connection is really a part of an original divine plan. Now, here I'm going to again speak as me, knowing full well that I have many listeners whose participation I cherish who uh, do not have a religious outlook and whose view of reality is fundamentally secular. Fine! fine, but let me speak from my point of view for just a moment, and that is that if you look around the world, you cannot help getting the idea that part of God's original plan involved connection, right? I'm not a theologian, uh, and um, I I am merely, I'm not going to look at the reasons for that, By the way, when I say I'm not a theologian, I'm just a religious American, Uh, what's the difference between a religious person and a theologian? A religious person is interested in what God thinks of me. A theologian is interested in what he thinks of God. Okay. That's, uh, he has theories about God, and uh, he gives his ideas as to what he thinks God is all about. I'm more interested in hearing what God thinks I'm all about. So I'm not a theologian. I'm not going to give the reason. I'm just going to say that, um, you know, there are 92 basic substances found naturally on Earth and on other planets, for that matter. We haven't found anything that is not part of this basic uh, structure of reality. There are 92 basic substances. We call them elements, and these are the basis of everything else. These are things like uh, iron, carbon, hydrogen, oxygen— sodium, gold, copper, chlorine, and many others, up to 92. These are the ones that are found naturally on the planet. But here's the crazy thing. Most everything we actually need and use is made up of a mixture or a compound of two or more elements. And so the air we breathe, the steel that we build cars with, The aluminum, we call it aluminum that we build airplanes with, but it isn't really just aluminum. Aluminum by itself is pretty useless. It's only when it gets alloyed with other metals. Uh, Iron, pretty useless, only becomes useful when you alloy it with carbon and chrome and you end up with steel. Everything is a mixture. Uh, Plastic, wood, the air we breathe, everything, water we drink. All of None of these things are basic elements. Even gold, by the way. You might say, what about my gold jewelry? Uh, you are very unlikely to have pure gold jewelry. Most gold, you know, they speak of the, the, you know, the, the, the measure of its purity. Most gold is mixed with something else, very often copper. In order to make it more durable, pure gold is so soft that you, you just can't really make durable du- uh, jewelry out of it. It just doesn't work. So at any rate, at its very basis, um, the idea of mixing and joining and connecting really does seem to be very basic. Um, it's, it's quite fascinating to me that aluminum is incredibly useful stuff, but not on its own. The element aluminum is useless, but it's only when it's blended with iron and silicon and zinc and copper and magnesium that it turns into this incredible metal that is corrosion-free, and it's light and it's strong. And all kinds of products are built out of this, but only after we connected aluminum with other things. Um, I think very often of um, reinforced concrete, look around you, bridges, uh, skyscrapers, buildings, everything made out of reinforced concrete. What's that? It's a connection between cement and steel, and it's brilliant. Again, you know, I'd have to say God intended us to develop reinforced concrete, and I'll tell you why. Because concrete by itself is very strong. If you stand on it or put weights on it, it's very strong. But if it has to be uh, what's called intention, if you if you're going to hang stuff from it, like you have to do on bridges, uh, cement just falls apart. You think of those cement blocks you can get at the hardware store or at the nursery, and if you're a student, you probably uh, put some planks on a few of those and called it a bookcase. Well, those blocks can take a lot of weight. But if you pull on them, two strong people pulling on it can crumble them. They're just not strong in tension. Now, steel rod is exactly reverse. It cannot take a lot of weight applied to its ends. But if you pull on the ends, it can take thousands and thousands of pounds of tension. And so somebody came up with, actually it was two different people independently, came up with the idea of mixing cement and steel bar and it's called reinforced concrete. You know why I think God intended us to make that connection? Because if, if you, as you know, everything expands when you heat it and shrinks when you cool it, except water within a certain range. And um, everything, for the most part, expands and contracts with temperature at its own rate. In other words, copper uh, expands quite a lot when you heat it. You can, you can really see it. Uh, other things like marble... Uh, do not expand a whole lot. But the crazy thing is that steel and cement expanded exactly the same rate. Who would have guessed? Because if they didn't, reinforced concrete would break itself apart as the temperature warmed up in the day and cooled off in the night. It's really just a wonderful thing. So connection really does seem to be incredibly significant. And, uh, two of the very powerful attractions we feel, sex and money, are actually no more than two components of the force of attraction. In other words, in the Bible, at the beginning, when God says not good for man to be alone, that's not just a description of Adam's matrimonial prospects. No! It is a statement that forever and ever— everywhere on the planet, men alone do not do well. Not good for man to be alone. In the area of marriage, he connects with a woman and changes his life. And in the area of money, he connects with somebody else, man or woman, to effect a transaction. I'll explain a little more on that. But the principles of connecting for success, are found in an audio CD. It's a two-hour program. You can download it or buy the CDs. It's called Prosperity Power Connect for Success and read more about it. If you like to find out a little bit more about it, just go to my website, lappen.com Go to the store, take a look at Prosperity Power Connect for Success and uh, I think you'll see it's something that will enhance your life. Connection absolutely fundamental. Your social life, your family life, your financial life, your your romantic life, everything depends for its ultimate successful fulfillment on connection. So you may as well know as much about connection as you possibly can. Okay, uh, a few nostalgic notes from the Queen of Soul, and on to the next segment. Yeah. well, she's right, isn't she? You need me. I need you. Without each other, there's nothing we can do. Absolutely right. And that is the topic. We're talking about this idea that God wanted connection among people. When God said not good for man to be alone, that actually was a divine decree for all time. And so on, on some level then, this appears to be the creator's plan that people should connect, and because the creator knows the nature of the people he created, namely us, he incentivized us to connect, and he built into us two supreme urges, sex and money. By the way, as an aside, Another way of looking at money is food, because in the final analysis, when you reduce life to its basics, you know why you need money? So you can eat. And so that's why there are very important overlaps between the areas of money and food. Not, not the main discussion area for today, but I just wanted to, to make you aware of that. But here we are. And uh, our creator says, look, I want you to connect. I want you to connect with each other. And I'm going to make it so that it'll be good for you. If you connect, you will make money. And if you connect, you'll be able to have sex. Okay. Well, this is why it is that in the pursuit of both sex and money, another person is needed. And this is very fundamental, and and I'm astonished at how many times I speak to groups of people, very often students at university, even students in economics and business topics, who don't realize that making money without another person is simply impossible. Now, people say, well, I don't talk to anyone. I sit on my computer and i play uh, various video games and i win money and that's how i make my i know i know there are people who do that but there are other people at the other end of that you're simply using today's equivalent of the telegraph or of yelling across the valley or of a telephone but there has to be somebody else got to be so um furthermore That other person has to be a person who can be a receiver. So, in other words, you want to make money. Okay, fine. Then you need to find one other person who has what characteristic? Well, that he's got money that you can take from him. Wrong. That's not the idea. The other person is a person who has a need that you can fill. I mean, obviously, he's got to be able to pay for it. But that in and of itself is insufficient. We've got to have somebody who has a need that you can fill. Well, isn't that true for sex as well? Uh, You'll pardon me even mentioning this abhorrent um, manifestation of the deviancy that has become part of life today on the planet but I'm talking about something called the sex doll industry. And uh, it, it was almost predictable because 30 years ago already, we all knew that the single child rule in a, in a number of Asian countries, mainly China, uh, was going to result in a sex mismatch. It was, it was obvious, and uh, there were lectures that I was giving back then uh, and I go back to to my notes, and and sure enough, uh, that's exactly what I was saying. I didn't say sex doll because I never thought of that, but uh, I did say that the um, single child rule would result in a time when there would be millions of uh, men unable to find wives or women because they will be, there will be too many men for too few women. Reason is because no matter how sophisticated and and how egalitarian, if most couples are going to have one child, most times they want it to be a boy, and this is as true in Manhattan um, as it is in Beijing. Uh, people do so. If you were going to restrict people to only one child, there was going to be a uh, uh, an overabundance of of men and a shortage of women. Okay, so one of the, th- the sort of sad, sad uh, manifestations of that is um, something called the sex doll, right? which is a uh, um, something made to appear to be a woman. Here's the big problem with it, and it's, it's a point that the, the industry, ha- and you'll, you'll pardon me, but I, I actually researched this a little bit for the show, uh, i wanted to make sure that they hadn't found a solution i didn't see how they could but i want to make sure that here's the big problem they cannot solve the problem is that the other person that you are with in a sexual relationship must be capable not only of giving pleasure that's easy even the doll can do that but much more importantly capable of receiving pleasure Because that is the essence of this incredible model that we find ourselves living. We're living this model. The model is set up in such a way so as that each party, particularly the man, but each party derives the maximum of pleasure from knowing that the other party is having pleasure. That's crazy. This is not a take-take relationship. It's a give-give relationship. And now how about money? It's exactly the same thing. If you really want a productive financial relationship, it has to be a giving relationship. Yes, the the customer gives you their money, but you are obsessed with pleasing them. And so I always say my slogan in, in wealth creation is, be obsessively preoccupied with the needs and desires of God's other children. And you can't go wrong. But I could also give that as a great marriage advice for a man. Be obsessively preoccupied with the desires of your wife. It's exactly the same thing. And there are other similarities. Not only do sex and money or the pursuit of sex and money both depend on you being a giver, not a taker. But um, it's also true that the parties come out of an interaction, whether it's sexual or economic, happier than when they entered. Right? The storekeeper is happy that you bought. You're happy that you found the shoes in the size you wanted, and obviously in a sexual relationship, uh, it fills the married couple with a sense of, of optimism and happiness and joy uh, in a way that was different an hour earlier. So uh, another difference, both interactions have the potential of creating something bigger than each participant alone. Right? A husband and a wife can create a baby through that act of mutual giving. Remarkable. And in a financial interaction, what can come out of that is a long term, uh, mutually profitable relationship, a partnership, a business partnership. It's incredible. And in both cases, the potential results of the interaction can take months to materialize, nine months in the case of sex and any amount of time in the case of business. That's really how it works. So really, the the attraction that we feel towards both sex and money, those two attractions are not two separate attractions any more than photons and waves are two completely separate things. No, they are both manifestations of the phenomenon we know as light. And so it is, sex and money are not two completely separate things. No, these two powerful attractions are no more than the two elements, the two components of the force of attraction both the pleasure of sexual fulfillment and the pleasure of acquiring money are attained only with the participation of another person and that's why it is that uh, when we speak about uh, you know newton came up with the law of universal gravitation and again nobody really understands we know how it behaves and what it does but we don't really nobody really knows how it works all we know is that we live in a universe where every single object is attracted to every other object. And so we're very accustomed to it. We have the moon orbiting around the earth. And what stops it flying off into space? The earth's gravitational attraction. But on the earth, we have a fluid called water in the form of oceans. And the oceans have weight. They have mass. And guess what? They are attracted to the moon. And we call that tides. And and that's how everything works. Uh, when uh, you can actually do this in a lab, it's it's really bizarre. But you can hang two heavy weights from uh, some you know imagine two bowling balls, and you hang them from the ceiling of the of the lab on very thin, strong uh, fishing line or, or or wire, and we can calculate exactly where they should be, right? Because the two lines suspending the two bowling balls should be parallel, but they're not. As a matter of fact, the two bowling balls are pulling towards each other. It's bizarre, but it's true. What I'm telling you is absolutely so. Any two objects that have weight pull towards one another. Now, if you're walking down the road with somebody and you're chatting and talking and you're carried away and you bump into one another, that's not the law of gravitation at work. That's just you're not paying attention to how you're walking. But there is a force pulling you together. It's just not strong enough um, to actually make it impossible to walk in parallel files, right? Soldiers couldn't parade. If uh, that force was stronger than it is, so it's not. It's not that strong, but it is measurable. It's really there. We all, everything. I mean, that's that's why this coming together, this connecting, seems to be an absolutely fundamental part of how the world works, how it really works, very much so. And so um, we we then find that once we can understand that there is a link between sex and money, we can then use certain things we understand about male-female relationships and realize they apply to money as well. And we can also find certain things we understand about money and apply them to male-female relationships. So if uh, I was was to give you an example, perhaps uh, for a productive sexual relationship to happen you have to have two different people you have to have a man and you have to have a woman and one of the main differences between the two uh, at the moment of sexual connection is that the man is a giver and the woman is a receiver okay not of pleasure but of the seed as it were Uh, conception now we have exactly the same idea in business, don't we? Where two people can be working out an idea for a business and a conception takes place because one might say, I conceive of a structure that does the following. Now, in order for a business conversation to be as productive as it possibly can, you also have to have one person being the giver and one person the receiver. Unlike in sexual relationships, in business, the giver doesn't have to be male, could be female. The receiver doesn't have to be female, could be male, could be two males, two females. As long as one person is giving and one person is receiving, let me explain. Uh, It can change and does change. And so while two people are conceiving of an idea, uh, one person might say, well, here's how I see it. Let's imagine we lay out the project in this way. While that's going on, if the other party is not listening, but either daydreaming or busily thinking how they're going to respond, it's non stimulating. It's frustrating because I can tell when the person to whom I'm talking is not listening. There's nothing more stimulating in a conversation when the other person is hanging on your every word. Try it, by the way. Try it the next time you have a conversation with somebody. Hang on every word. Let your face show the interest you are making yourself feel. And you will notice that they get stimulated and they, they excel. And then there's a switch. At the end of that, when you've been listening and they've been explaining, you reverse it. And the person might finish up by saying, so what do you think? And then you start and you say, okay, well, here's how I see it. And instantly the roles have been switched. Receiver and giver. The point is you have to have both, and we can see that working in money because we know it works that way in sex, and it works the other way as well, obviously, that many things that are true in monetary transactions or interactions uh, are things that also apply in sexual interactions, And, and you'll be able to quickly see what those are. So uh, sometimes we watch couples forming and you often hear people saying, I don't know what she sees in him. You know, I don't know what he sees or what does she see in him? Well, if you don't realize that sex and money are both part of the same thing, they're both part of the uh, principle of attraction and gravitation, they're both part of of the plan for human connectivity, uh, then we realize that when a woman is attracted to a man, sometimes it's for sexual reasons. sometimes she just thinks he's incredibly good looking. And uh, sometimes it's only for money. right? And there've certainly throughout history been many dynastic marriages that have been based entirely on bringing together two fortunes rather than on any sexual attraction. And um, then, obviously, you also have uh, marriages or relationships that come about uh, with very little compatibility other than in the sexual area. That also happens. But by and large, overwhelmingly, we recognize that both these factors play a role. And so, I would never tolerate somebody saying disparagingly, oh, I know what she sees in him. It's his bank account. No, that is part of the package. It's a legitimate part. That doesn't make her a gold digger. No, she realizes that a man's fortune is very much part of who he is. It's not separable. It's tied together. I've spoken about this in the past on many occasions that, a man's entire sense of masculine identity is very much tied to his financial ability. And so, yes, a woman may well not even know in her own mind whether she's drawn to him mostly out of an animalistic, uh, passionate sensual attraction or whether it's because she feels confident that he's an ambitious man who'll be able to build a family with her and will not subject the family to financial stress uh she may in her own mind is probably not even aware because those two things blend together you cannot separate them and when a man is drawn to a woman uh, partially certainly sexual attraction is there But there's also another part of it where he feels, again, perhaps subconsciously, perhaps he cannot even separate these out. Most of us probably can't. But he feels a a passionate drive to give to her, to support her, to be able to provide for the children that their love bring into the world. There's the sense that she will draw of him. More than he could possibly draw of himself. The idea that she will help him make more of himself. All of these have to do with these topics we're talking about. All part of it and all inseparable. Yes, the, the sex and the money, all part of very much the same idea. The uh, uh, Much more of this in the audio program, a two-hour audio program, that I would love for you to buy, I know you're going to find it useful, and I know that other people in your orbit uh, would find it useful as well. It's called Prosperity Power Connect for Success, and uh, it not only deals with some of the practical aspects of connecting, for instance, the idea of training yourself to be a fantastic listener, whether it's with your spouse or whether it's with a business associate, or whether it's with something you've just met. Uh, And so in Prosperity, Power, Connect for Success, I teach a little bit on exactly that, how much can be gained from learning to listen. I also cover something you'll find interesting, which is why so many verses in the Hebrew scriptures start with the word and, even though your English teacher and mine taught us that you never start a sentence with and. Well, about 60% of the verses in the five books of Moses do. But there is one book in the Hebrew scriptures, you'll never guess what it is. There's one book where 90% of the verses start with and. You won't be shocked to discover that that is the book that contains many of the secrets of connecting for success. Until we're together next week, I, your rabbi, wish you a week of good health and prosperity. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.